DW, World in Progress. With Sarah Stephan. This week, we turn to the dark side of the internet. We talk about deceit, scamming and human trafficking. Crypto scams are on the rise, often paired with romance scams. So by then, I was in love with this person. This was a, this was a romance thing. I was in love with this person. It was at that moment that I realized I was scammed. $5,000 of my own money, gone. And another about $18,000 I took out in loans. There's a market out there for disinformation campaigns that arrive on social media. We have definitely reached a point where the advice of don't believe everything you see online actually might be very sober advice to give someone. And consuming your information slowly, perhaps, is also just as important. Take a pause before you share a piece of content that might be a bit sensational. And the aftermath of the university scam that put Indian students in Canada at risk of deportation. Coming up now on this week's episode of DW's World in Progress. Welcome to the show. I'm your host, Sarah Steffen. Crime enclaves have grown along Myanmar's border since the coup in 2021. These new cities are hubs for online gambling, drugs, and lately online cryptocurrency scams. It's big money for criminal syndicates and the Myanmar military's allies who control the territory. Exact figures of just how much money is lost in these scams are hard to come by. The Federal Bureau of Investigation in the U.S. says Americans alone lost more than 10 billion U.S. dollars in online scams in 2022. About a quarter of that has been linked to cryptocurrency fraud, which is on the rise. Damages from crypto scams have nearly tripled compared to the previous year. The scams are especially cruel because they prey on some of the biggest insecurities. Loneliness in the West, economic hardships in the East. And all of this is happening in the middle of one of the hotspots of Myanmar's civil war. Justin Higginbottom went to investigate how the scams play out and how they are linked to human trafficking. He's reporting from the Thailand-Myanmar border region. Troy Gokenhauer was a trained actor living in New York before COVID brought him home to Ohio in 2021. Like many during that time, he was feeling pretty isolated. It was hard to meet people. I am on Facebook dating. I hate online dating, but this is free. You know, it doesn't cost you anything, so whatever. I'm contacted by this person who, according to their profile, they live in Seattle. And they say hello. I send a message saying, hey, you look like you live in Seattle. I'm in Ohio. How would this work? Her profile picture was an Asian woman. Troy thought she was beautiful. She responded, yes, it's me. Uh, is... Seattle far away. Odd. Everybody knows that Seattle's far away from Ohio. Well, anyway, it started a conversation. That conversation grew more and more personal. There were red flags, like her not wanting to video chat, but she seemed genuinely interested in his life. She always wanted to know what I was doing. She wanted pictures, and I like to, uh, to grill meats. So she always wanted pictures of the meats that I was grilling. She always wanted to know if I had eaten. She always wanted to know if I slept well. She said she had quit her job because she was making so much off cryptocurrency, hundreds of dollars a day. 
doing something called liquidity mining. That's where you earn rewards by lending a trading platform your cryptocurrency. She told Troy he should do it too. So I had heard of cryptocurrency, and I had also known there were major price fluctuations on it. I said, I don't want anything to do with cryptocurrency, but make it $200 a day is nice because I'm starting my life over. And uh, at the time, I was 48 years old. And I said, boy, I've been looking for a way to make money. I mean, that would be nice. After some pushing, he finally agreed. So by then, I was in love with this person. This was a, this was a romance thing. I was in love with this person. She walked him through what he needed to do. Download Coinbase. That's a trading platform. Get a digital wallet. He'd get a 1% per day return on whatever was in that wallet. The more crypto he had, the higher the return. Troy only had around $5,000 to his name. He spent it all. So it's working for about the, about the first three, four, five days, something like that. Every six hours, I was putting a little bit of money into my wallet. Wow, this thing's working. He was making money. He was in love. It was the new start he had dreamt of. But to understand what was about to happen to Troy, let's fast forward a couple years. On the other end of the world, in the Philippines, a young call center worker also thought he had stumbled across a way to a better life, a new job in Bangkok. Well, I hear this job in Facebook ads or hiring some just like encoder. They said that it's chat support. Um, they can offer or give you just like 60,000 peso. And then uh, it's all free, free food, free um, dormitory, free accommodations, and they, uh, yeah. they will be on the covered our flight going here in Bangkok. 60,000 pesos is around 1,000 US dollars. That's per month. With all expenses paid, he would be able to save a life-changing amount of money. But when he landed in Bangkok with a group of other Filipinos hired for the job, their new employers told them they wouldn't be working there. Instead, they'd be heading to Maesat, a small town on the Myanmar border. It all started to seem suspicious. That's the time that we are just thinking about. Why is it that there's a lot of picking up? Very strange uh, yeah. transportation because uh, we have to ride in a car like four times and we go in a road like it's very scary yeah. road. We have to cross the river. That river they crossed at night on a motorless boat is the Moy River. It separates Thailand and Myanmar. We don't have any idea that we're going to uh, Burma in Myanmar. Burma. We didn't know about that. Uh, there's a lot of people like, uh, I have a big guns. Yeah. Yes, I have it's a big like guns. Just like rebel armies. Yes. Rebellion yeah. armies. Though. You have no choice. You, uh, there's no place to escape. By the time they fully realized their situation, it was too late. Armed guards wouldn't let them leave without paying a fee. They had their passports. And their new jobs were also not what they expected. Actually, it's a cryptocurrency work. Um, it's just like a dating site. We were going to find uh, beautiful models from Instagram. We are using women from Instagram. So we're looking innocent um, women. Innocent women. Mm. They were forced to work in an online scam called pig butchering. That's where scammers use fake profiles to build romantic relationships with victims online, fattening them up before taking what they can, usually with the get-rich cryptocurrency scheme. Their hours were better set to reach Americans. It's the kind of scam that tricked Troy Gokenhauer in Ohio. Troy had checked his digital wallet after seeing a return that first week, and it was empty. But he had a message offering him a sort of contract. If he put in $5,000 more worth of crypto, then he would get all his money back and big rewards. I said, uh... Hey, what is all this? Oh, you got a contract. You are so lucky. 
Yeah, I got that too. Yeah, I made a lot of money when I fulfilled my contract. Boy, you are lucky. We're going to make a lot of money out of this. He took out a loan and deposited another 5000 His wallet was emptied again. He put in another 5000 That disappeared. This time, they tell him he'll finally be getting a $200,000 payout, but first, he needs to pay taxes. It was at that moment that I realized I was scammed. $5,000 of my own money, gone. And another about $18,000 I took out in loans. This was in the fall of October, November of 2021. I have been paying the loans back ever since. I still owe about $5,700. The woman he fell in love with didn't exist. Her photo was stolen from the account of a Hong Kong influencer. The person or people he was talking to were likely based in a scam center across the border from Mesot, maybe Shui Koko or KK Park. These are new cities built on crime. Syndicates have lured thousands of willing and unwilling workers there. It's industrialized scamming. It's where that group of Filipinos were based. I met them in Thailand a day after an anti-scam organization negotiated their release. And it's not only their countrymen being trafficked to these crime hubs. You were listening to a video that went viral in Indonesia in April. In it, an Indonesian woman is pleading for her government to rescue her from one of these scam centers. She says she was tricked into working there. She's being held against her will, threatened with torture. Another video shows a room full of Indonesians, 20 in total, that are trying to escape. He treats us not like a human. He punch, he beat, he got electric gun, he shorted to my body, my friend all got short with that gun, I'm crying to very bad condition. That's one of those that was held. He's talking about the Chinese boss of the operation. I met him and three other Indonesians in Thailand on the night they were finally released. This man was working as a fish breeder in Jakarta before coming here. He has a similar story to the group from the Philippines. It all started with an ad on Facebook. At the center, he says he worked 19-hour days. He received less than $100 the first couple months, then nothing. What, what can we do? We must work. If we are not working, they hit us. His job was to make contact with potential marks, mostly Americans. He would strike up a conversation, get a phone number, and then he would give that number to someone else to continue the scam. He says he felt bad tricking people. He would pray they wouldn't fall for it. Uh, last time I got the customer, but I pray this person, no, this, this is scam, and then he failed. I pray, and then it happened. He was released with help from the Global Anti-Scam Organization, a group which was founded by scam victims back in 2021. Volunteers with that group explain how they negotiate the release of workers like this man and those from the Philippines. They're staying anonymous here as they've received death threats from crime syndicates in the past. There was actually like this compound management we call Uye, which means they actually control all of these companies. So there are like, say for example, there are like more than 50 companies in it's one compound. So they are like the landlord. They take care and manage the entire business in the compound. We don't engage the crime syndicate. We would go straight to the Man. compound landlord. She says since Cambodia cracked down on their scamming industry, also often run by Chinese crime syndicates, new developments in Myanmar have picked up the slack. And she says right now, pig butchering is the moneymaker. 
Her group doesn't only try to save those trafficked into Myanmar, they also reach victims on the other end of the scam, those in love with a phantom and about to lose their savings. But she says they're hard to convince. They usually continue to lose money even after she explains what's happening. The most dangerous thing about this pickpocketing scam is that we actually attempt to like stop people from transferring money. This type of scam is like really convincing. We're getting close to like rescuing one or two out of like 10 victims because they, they, they were being brainwashed. They, they're just not listening to anyone. Of course, these crime enclaves exist in the midst of a war. Scammers can often hear the fighting. In 2021, the Myanmar military ousted the country's democratically elected government. That's led to a widespread uprising, including in Kayan State, where the scamming compounds are located and where ethnic Karin groups have battled the military since the 40s. For crime syndicates, the coup was a blessing. Before the coup, the trajectory was one of crackdown, eliminating a space for these malign actors to operate along the Moy River area. That's Jason Tower. He's the Myanmar country director at the United States Institute of Peace. He says Aung San Suu Kyi's National League for Democracy-led government even managed to shut down one enclave. At the time, it was a hub for online gambling. Now, fast forward to after the coup, within just a couple of weeks of the coup, that enclave was back up online. And you've seen, you know, since that the nature of the criminal activity there has has really shifted. I mean, it's no longer focused on the illicit online gambling, it's now focused on scams powered by human trafficking. It's also big business for Myanmar's junta and allies. The territory near the Moi River is controlled by the Krin Border Guard Force. They split from Krin rebel forces and are now under the military's control. That means these territories are bringing the regime money, and they're a clear target for anti-junta forces. That's footage of fighters from the Lion Battalion supposedly smashing up a small casino outside of Shuekoko in April. The anti-junta force attacked the border guard force's territory, saying they wanted to end criminal activity in the area. That attack didn't go well. Information was leaked to the border guard force about their, their plans, and the border guard force intercepted them as they tried to infiltrate the, the crime city. The more historic ethnic armed organizations in the region, like the country's oldest, the Korean National Union, or KNU, ban involvement in the crime hubs. But on the ground, it can be more complicated. You have heard of quite a few cases now of individual members of the KNU being co-opted into this. And I see where this is very threatening to the KNU because it's quite hard to sustain a fight for the autonomy of the current people if you're being co-opted by this cancerous criminal activity, which is, again, largely being driven by the, the military's own border guard force in that area. He's identified over a dozen of these criminal enclaves along Myanmar's border regions, bringing in who knows how much for gangsters to rebel armies to the military. You can assume it's a priority for those in control to keep the scams running. This summer, Thailand cut the electricity supply to Shui Koko. That was reportedly at the behest of Myanmar's junta, which in turn was from pressure by the Chinese government. China isn't only embarrassed by the high-profile involvement of criminals from their country, but Chinese are also trafficked to Myanmar. Unfortunately, after the power cut, Shui Koko continues to hum along using electric generators. 
Meanwhile, as Choi in Ohio pays back his loans, he volunteers with a global anti-scam organization. After hearing other stories, he knows it could have been worse for him. I have talked to victims around the world that as much as I've lost, they've lost far, far, far worse. They have cashed in retirement plans. They have sold houses. They have gone through divorces. And when the house had to be sold, they lost the money. I talked to a guy who committed suicide a month later. He knows at least some of the scammers are like those from Indonesia and the Philippines I met, victims themselves. I ask him if this has softened his perspective any. Sort of, because I, I don't believe now that they are all human trafficking victims. Even the ones that perhaps are trafficked end up, they want to be there because they can make money. So when I think about you know what I've lost, and it was a lot for me, it was, it's nothing compared to what other folks have lost. And when I think about that and I weigh that against what these scammers are going through, I don't know, sometimes I don't care as much as I should. Justin Higginbottom for DW in Mesa, Thailand. The internet as a place for scamming and as a market for disinformation. In the East African nation of Kenya, for instance, where elections have often been marked by violence, social media platforms have been teeming with political disinformation. For hire. For about 10 to 15 U.S. dollars a day, so-called keyboard warriors can launch a smear campaign on your opponents. It's a lucrative business, considering many Kenyans make well below that in a day. Other attacks have been launched on Kenyan journalists, judges and activists. Earlier, I spoke to Odanga Madung, a data journalist in Kenya and a researcher for the Mozilla Foundation. I started by asking him to walk us through how such disinformation for hire campaigns operate. So such disinformation for hire campaigns are typically services that are offered to politicians that are looking to spread propaganda amongst the populace. It's a fairly simple willing buyer, willing seller type of thing, where if I'm a politician and I'm looking to try and manage expectations of citizens or crowds, I will usually would consider having you know, a certain set of, how they call it, influencers on a payroll that are essentially supposed to push out the narrative that I want um, towards the populace. And in the Kenyan context, as we've seen in the past, there was a lot of violence surrounding the elections. Have you also seen posts that were trying to stir up hate between ethnic groups? Yes, there has been quite a bit of what we try to call content that tries to stir up emotions based on political past. So that is something that we definitely witnessed in some of the research that we had been doing. And what have social media platforms been doing to curb dis and misinformation on their platforms? I mean, social media platforms will typically have a raft of remedies to try and deal with the ideas of whether something is true or false. That's where they have largely put in a lot of their efforts, which is basically around the fact-checking industry, right? So the idea that they'll have an army of fact-checkers that look basically into whether some of the things on the platform are true or false. And then secondly, also they have what they call content moderation houses that are able to take down speech that violates their terms of service. That mostly has been the main way they have tried to adapt to this problem. But as we can clearly see, it's not been enough, one. And two, many of these companies have actually been getting rid of the people that are supposed to be looking into some of these things because of the, I'm sure you are aware of the big wave of tech layoffs that's been happening across the world. So that in itself, you know, we are seeing a closing window of the ability of platforms to be able to deal with these kind of problems. 
So as the attacks rise, they've been laying off staff that can actually fact check and remove said content. Mm. Um, you've said that disinformation campaigns were big on Twitter, but also on TikTok. Why these two platforms and how do attacks differ from platform to platform? So attacks differ from platform to platform, depending on the structure of the platform. Each platform has a different structure, which perhaps would require different type of engineering in order to understand how to amplify messages within it. Now, why TikTok and Twitter? My hunch is because both platforms have algorithms for amplification that are very easy to manipulate and you know seem to be very relevant in that particular sense. But this is not to say, however, that platforms like Facebook or Instagram also don't have algorithms that are easy to manipulate. This is just also that we, these are the platforms that we decided to look at given their significance towards the political landscape in Kenya. In this digital age, I fear it's going to get worse with, with all the technological possibilities opening up. I'm thinking about these deep fake videos or AI generated voices that sound like your own, um, which of course you can, you can use for nefarious purposes, right? How can we counter that? Despite there being the prevalence of deepfakes, the deepfake apocalypse that had been predicted for quite some time did not end up coming. Disinformation sometimes does not even need you to manipulate video for it to work. We also really need to be thinking about what makes disinformation effective. And that's actually something that's very important for us to consider because when someone is creating a disinformation campaign, that's what they really need to understand is you know, what exactly would be the best way for me to create a piece of content that could end up um, swaying opinion towards a certain way. Sometimes it's not necessarily a manipulated piece of content that might be able to do the job. There are many cases where P videos or audio being taken out of context have been used for disinformation campaigns. But on the second point, there is also a reverse of this issue where now we have a case where politicians are able to also escape accountability because they can easily say that, look, I didn't say that, or that wasn't me in that video. What you saw there was actually artificially generated. What is your advice to, to a broader audience, people who use Twitter or TikTok or Facebook? How can they decipher whether something is real or not and not fall victim to disinformation? I really don't know because a big part of when disinformation becomes effective is largely due to your own belief systems and how you basically your own view of the world. I would say that try to seek truth in as much as you can and also number two yeah it, it is definitely we have definitely reached a point where the advice of don't believe everything you see online actually might be very sober advice to give someone if you are thinking about um advising them on how exactly to go about their life it's unfortunate you know many people talk about how the artificial intelligence era this current era of artificial generative artificial intelligence that we are in you know, it's going to usher in an age where nobody will know what is true or false. But I'm like, we are already in that era. Um, there are many a times when big things happen in the world, we really have to question ourselves. So, you know, media literacy is important um, and consuming your information slowly, perhaps, is also just as important. Take a pause before you share a piece of content that might be a bit sensational and seek truth as much as you can. 
That was Odanga Madung speaking to me there. A scamming scandal in Canada involving Indian students has recently made headlines. Students from India found themselves at risk of deportation. They had reportedly used fake admission letters to start studying in Canada. They used the services of an agent who helped them apply for their visas. This man has now been charged by the Canadian authorities. Morley Krishnan talked to some Indian students who were duped. In May this year, Karamjit Kaur was facing deportation from Canada after a college admission letter that secured her entry into the country five years ago turned out to be fake. After graduating from Norquist College in Edmonton, Alberta with a diploma in Business Administration Management in 2020 and holding down a job for a couple of years, the 25-year-old woman from the North Indian state of Punjab says she only learned the letter wasn't genuine this year, when she was applying for permanent residency or PR in Canada. It's really stressful. It's really expensive to hire a good lawyer to fight your case. Moreover, it put me very behind to get my PR and it's been like more than five years I didn't see my parents. It's really depressing actually after you're doing everything right and suddenly it happens to you. Shocked by the revelation, Kaur said she didn't know much about the immigration process and had trusted the agent back in India who helped her. Hiring immigration agents, a private service not affiliated with any government, is a common practice for students from India who hope to move abroad. Kaur did the same. Many of the students who are now facing the threat of deportation say they are being victimized for fraud committed by visa agents and education counsellors. Rabinder Singh, another student from Toronto who finishes business administration course, is facing a similar problem. The Canada Border Services Agency, or CBSA, told him he was in the country illegally. When I see a letter from CBSA at my home, and when I open the letter and I, you enter in Canada was a fake off letter under that time. I'm totally shocking news for me because I'm waiting for my PR letter. When I applied my study permit from India, the agent name was Brijesh Mishra and his office was in Jalandhar, Punjab, India. This agent, Brijesh Mishra, was also involved in Kaur's case. The Canadian authorities have now charged him for immigration-related offences. News of the imminent deportation pushed Indian students to stage a demonstration in the greater Toronto area. Many of the students protesting claim to have arrived in Canada in 2018. The irregularities in their applications largely came to light when the students tried to gain permanent residency. Ravinder says he thought he had done everything right. We are innocent victims here. We everyone done their study here. Everyone done their education here. Because everyone done their study here, then why we need a fake off letter? Official data shows there were more than 800,000 foreign students with active visas in Canada in 2022. Of those, some 320,000 were from India. India's External Affairs Minister, S.J. Shankar, also got involved and took up the issue with his counterpart. From the very start, Foreign Ministry here as well as our High Commission and the Consulates in Canada have taken up their case and our point is that look, the students studied in good faith. If there were people who misled them, the people who misled them, the culpable parties should be acted against. It is 
unfair to punish a student who undertook their education in good faith. Meanwhile, Canada has announced a freeze on the planned deportation of the students. I call this meeting to order. Welcome to meeting number 71 of the House of Commons Standing Committee on Citizenship and Immigration. Canada's Parliamentary Immigration Committee has initiated its own investigation, seeking clarification from immigration and border officials regarding the delayed detection of fake documents and the potential penalization of innocent students who have become unwittingly victims of the scam. Cor is still tense as she follows the committee's proceedings. We were just trying to explain everything. I know like uh, right now they are listening us and they are trying to reconsider our cases, but uh, we are processing with the legal advices. It is not the first time that education counsellors, often acting as commission agents for foreign colleges, have defrauded Indian students. In the past, students had also been duped while seeking admission in the US and other European countries. Murli Krishnan, DW, New Delhi, India. And there certainly is big money involved when it comes to the education business. And well, where there's money involved, there's probably someone thinking of a scam. That's the end of the show. For more World in Progress content, go to dw.com slash worldinprogress or wherever you get your podcasts. The studio team was Wiebke Tegtmeier and Ziad Abu Sleiman. I'm Sarah Steffen. Thanks for listening and bye for now.